0: Father, we give thanks for grace. Lord, I give You thanks that I can trust with full confidence that You will work through me in spite of all my weaknesses. That You will work in us as a body in spite of all our weaknesses and frailties. Lord, that You will accomplish the purpose that You've set forth for us and that there will be a day when we will all be perfected in You and we will see You face to face and proclaim with one heart and one voice through the ages that You are great and great is Your faithfulness. Lord, I also give You simple thanks for saving me. Lord, I'm struck with the reality that if it had not been for the death of Your Son, That I would not know when I would, what would happen to me when I died. There would be no certainty, except maybe the certainty of hell. And Lord, that is the status of so many people in this world, maybe even here tonight, that they have no covering for their sins. And that all that awaits is a fearful expectation of judgment. And I give You thanks that You love the lost. And that You desire all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That they might escape Your wrath. And Lord, I pray that You would work in us to to treasure Your grace more. To treasure You more. And to love the lost more. So that we might be faithful representatives of you on this earth. God, we give you thanks because everything we have is from you. Lord, and so we give you thanks. For from you and through you and to you are all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's nothing more attractive to an enemy than disunity amongst his foes. And that's why on October 21st, 1805, when Horatio Nelson heard that two of his top commanders were at odds, he dealt with the matter decisively. Admiral Horatio Nelson of the Royal British Navy had just caught the Franco-Spanish fleet off the coast of Cadiz, Spain. But just before the notorious Battle of Trafalgar he discovered that another admiral and his captain were not on good terms. And when Nelson was enlightened of this conflict that they were having, he invited them both to dinner in his cabin. And when they came together, the first thing he did is he he had the two of them join hands. And then he pointed to the enemy ships, earnestly looking them both in the eyes, and he uttered these simple words. Yonder is the enemy, gentlemen. And it was enough. The disagreements were forgotten, and victory was achieved. One of the most malicious, insidious, and ancient threats that the church has faced is disunity. Arguably, you could say that nothing has wreaked more havoc upon the church than this issue. It's the chief weapon that Satan has fashioned. Even while still under the guidance and shepherding of the apostles, the early church had to wrestle with disunity. The book of Acts closes with Paul being imprisoned in Rome. And while he was in prison in Rome, Paul received word that some of the churches that he had shepherded and even established were dealing with disunity. And that's why, well, one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church. And it's the issue of disunity that Paul takes up in chapter 2. So let's read that together. Verses 1 through 11. Paul starts, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look out to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There are three main elements in this exhortation in Philippians chapter 2. First of all, the first thing that Paul does is he reminds the Philippians of their benefits in the gospel. Secondly, in light of those benefits, he calls them to have a unified purpose. And then he notes that unity will be expressed in humility towards one another. And so for simplicity, I've outlined the exhortation in the image of a tree or a plant. So you have the root of unity, which is the gospel, the shoot of unity. It's like the trunk or the stem of a plant, which is single mindedness or unity of purpose, unity itself, essentially. So you have the root of unity, which is the gospel. Unity itself, and then the fruit of unity, which is humility. And then in five through eleven, Paul gives Christ as the ultimate example of what this humble mindset looks like. So in Philippians two, Paul is addressing the problem of disunity, but he couches this exhortation in a verse that he made that he mentioned earlier, in chapter one, verse twenty-seven. So look at chapter one, verse twenty-seven, and this really is the Uh, the foundation of where he goes in chapter 2. This is the main exhortation in the book. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the biggest thing that Paul is concerned about in the Philippian church. In fact, if they could do that, their problems would be solved. Now, he elucidates on that, and so dealing with disunity is really part of his elucidation of what it means that their life would be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, live in such a way that reflects that you have an accurate understanding of what Christ did to you or did for you. Live in such a way that demonstrates you understand the gospel. So he says, let your life, manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I would hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind. The first thing that Paul addresses in chapter 2 of how they are to have this unity is that they have to have a clear understanding of the gospel. And that's really what he gets at when he says if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, affection, sympathy, what he's saying is he's reminding them of the benefits that they have in the gospel. It should change the way they perceive life. In other words, if they really understood that they have all these things, they would have their eyes off of themselves instead of fighting one another. See, since Christ and the Spirit have given them all the blessings of the gospel, they no longer have to look out for themselves. Instead, they could be freed up to pursue the interests of Christ, and in particular, loving one another. So instead of looking out for themselves, they should be considering how they should be able to serve one another within the church. So notice the pattern. If you've been encouraged by Christ, encourage one another. If you've been comforted by Christ, comfort one another. If you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, have fellowship with one another. If you've received affection and sympathy from God and Christ, do the same thing for one another. Give affection and give sympathy to one another. And the point is, the gospel produces unity because it destroys self-focus. See, if you think about it, what is the main cause of disunity in any situation, selfishness, self-focus. The gospel destroys self-centeredness. For instance, or first of all, it destroys self-focus because if we understand that we have been forgiven by God and that now he considers us as children, in other words, his affection for us is stronger than even the affection that we would have for our own kids. And He's sovereign over every atomic movement, over every cosmic movement. That God is going to work out everything for our good. Romans 8. It's a promise. And when you understand that, when you understand that God has your back, it frees you up from having to control your own life. But secondly, the gospel also calls us to die to ourselves. Take a minute and and, uh, put your finger in Philippians 2 and flip backwards to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to go ahead and flip there because it's such a critical verse that it's worth some examination. So not only does the gospel free us from having to guard ourselves because we know that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? But it also calls us to die to ourselves. So if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. It controls why we do what we do, is his point here. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, That one has died, that is Christ, one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, notice this, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That we might no longer live for ourselves. And this is the central issue in unity. As long as a person is being focused on his own interests, unity can never be accomplished because selfishness destroys unity. You've heard the cheesy quip that there is no I in team. But it's true. And coaches say that because self-centeredness destroys the unity of a team. What happens when a player only plays hard when he's getting passed to? Or when they're concerned with their own stats rather than supporting the rest of the team. Eventually what you have is every man for himself competing against one another rather than playing together. Just a bunch of guys trying to look good. But the opposite is also true. The reason a soldier will selflessly jump upon a hand grenade to save the lives of his fellow soldiers or he'll run at a machine gun... Is because he knows the men he's fighting with would do the exact same thing. One of the frequent things that um, soldiers have to deal with when they come back from war is survivor's guilt. And what that is, is they feel guilty because they have a sense of responsibility that the guy that they were fighting for was under their care. And he died and they didn't. Or she died and they didn't. Every one of them understands that everybody around them has their back. And so they would willingly take the bullet for one of their buddies. They have the same purpose. Completing the objective and watching one another's back. Unity destroys selfishness and selfishness destroys unity. And it's no accident that the binding characteristic... Of those who have received the Congressional Medal of Honor, besides valor, is humility. I was recently reading a book on the on the Medal of Honor recipients. And the man who wrote the book, um, Peter Collier, he wrote the book Medal of Honor, Portraits of Valor Beyond the Call of Duty. As, he, as he's writing the introduction of the book, he said, The biggest thing that stood out to me in all these people that I interviewed and all their friends and reading their stories, the The one characteristic that kept coming up besides courage was they were some of the most humble men and some of the most humble stories I've ever come across. And what's even more remarkable is the two other men that wrote introductions to that book made the same observation. Tom Brokaw and George W. Bush. Same thing, humility. And this truth is affirmed by Paul as well. Notice what he says next in his exhortation. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Single mindedness. He calls them to have single mindedness. This is the, 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 the shoot of our plant illustration. And he uses four phrases which essentially call the Philippians to one thing. Single mindedness. He says, be of the same mind. Maintain the same love, be united in spirit, be intent on one purpose. But notice also that he sets this exhortation up with his calling them to fulfill his joy. Notice the first thing he says, complete my joy by being unified, essentially. But it's the exhortation is complete my joy. The driving emphasis in Paul's life, as we know, has been that every nation, every individual on the face of this earth might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved from their sins. But not only that, as people receive the gospel that they would grow in Christ's likeness and they would pursue spiritual maturity and as each individual embraces true spiritual maturity, then his joy would be complete. Because that's his goal. His goal is complete spiritual maturity for the church. And as that Maturity is accomplished, that is when Paul's joy will be completed. Which is why he writes, be of the same mind. Have that same mind that I have. And the word mind is is worth our focus. It's the word "franeo," And it's worth our focus because it's used 26 times in the New Testament... But ten of those times, so one-third of those times, is here in the book of Philippians. So it's a key word in the book. But it's also notoriously difficult to translate because there's no single word in English that really effectively communicates what it's talking about. It means mind, but it has more to it than just an intellectual sense. It equally involves one's emotions, one's attitude, and even one's will. So it's mind, but it's emotions, attitude, and will all kind of into one essence. You could translate it feel the same way and think the same thoughts, have the same priorities that I have. It essentially refers to the framework of thinking, the, 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 the mechanism for why we make the, choice, the choices that we make, our mental paradigm, the mental filter. For why we choose to do one thing and not choose to do another thing. His point is that Christians should have the same filter for their choices. They should all be making decisions because they have the same framework, the same priorities. And this truth is furthered by the next phrase. He says, have the same love. In other words, be affectionately committed to the same purpose. Not just intellectually committed. Not just... Emotionally committed, but affectionately, dealing with the very heart of each believer. And he says, being in full accord with one mind. That word, uh, the full accord, is really a, make it, made up of two words. The words sum and sukos. Psychos is where we get the word psychology. Where we, translated soul it means one a person's inner self, the inner man. So, and soon is together. So having A unified inner soul is the idea. So although believers will manifest different gifts and have different preferences, preferences, the central heart of every believer and the central uh, driving factor in our decisions should be the same. Because we're trying to live for the same thing, think the same thing, make choices based on trying to accomplish one particular thing. Which begs the question, what are we trying to accomplish? What is this single purpose that we should all have? What is our purpose? I would say it's exalting God by presenting the gospel of salvation to those outside of Christ and helping those within the church pursue Christlikeness. likeness. I'll say it again. Our purpose is to exalt God by presenting the gospel of salvation to those outside of Christ and helping those within the church pursue Christ's likeness. In short, edification and evangelism. It's our purpose. It should be our driving sukos. Edification should be our purpose. Paul says this in Colossians 128. He says, We proclaim Him, that is Christ, Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's his goal. Every man to be complete in Christ. For this purpose I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. That's our purpose within the church that every man, and that includes women and children of course, but that everybody would be complete in Christ. In other words, spiritually mature. Secondly, evangelism. Paul writes in Romans 1.5, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, for his name's sake. All the Gentiles. That is, everyone who is not a Jew. But it's to the Jew too, of course. But here he's talking about his apostleship is to, particularly to the Gentile nations. every." Gentile. So what's Paul's purpose? That every man would be completing Christ. That is his driving focus. All of his decisions really are about that thing. If If it doesn't fit into that, you have to ask the question, why? Everything in our lives should be focused upon these purposes. And notice, when this happens... Self interest dies, and unity is natural. Imagine a medieval town which is about to be attacked by some malicious, barbaric tribe. And as the townspeople hear their blood curdling screams and they see this horrific threat descending upon them from the hills, each person, men, women, children, need to decide how they're going to respond. So, what are their options? The crowd could panic and every man do, you know, live for himself, protect himself, run whichever which way. But of course, that would be foolish because at that point they'd be easily cut down. Or they could unite together and follow behind those who are experienced in fighting and setting up a strong defense. You can imagine each person setting about doing whatever he could help to defend the town. Wealthy merchants would devote their money to getting resources, but every person would devote what they had available to the cause. Serfs who were used to hard labor would perform well. Warriors, due to their training and experience, would fight and lead well. Farmers would devote their materials and goods to supply the needs of the community. Women would care for their kids while the men were fighting, and children Would obey their parents. When people are willing to join in a common purpose. Self-interest is destroyed. And victory is attainable. But as long as they insist on being independent. And pursuing their own interests. Looking out for themselves. Then they are a hindrance. To everybody else there. And as Christians. Our lives should be focused upon completing the purposes of Christ. And if something in our lives is not it's ultimately because of self-interest. If something in our lives is not about completing the interests of Christ, it's ultimately because of self-interest. Which is why Paul says what he says in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And this verse introduces the The fruit of our plant illustration. We've already looked at the root, which is our understanding of the gospel. And the shoot, which is single-mindedness, or our purpose. And now we're looking at the fruit, which is humility. So if we understand the gospel and have embraced dying to our own interests, and we're living focused on the interests of Christ and His church, then the natural fruit of such a life is going to be humility. You know a tree by its fruit. And therefore you know if a person has their, li- their life focused on the interests of Christ, if they are characterized by humility. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. The word rivalry is also translated selfish ambition. I think it's actually probably a better translation. It carries the idea of doing something for your own end. Being driven by self-interest. And the second word he uses, conceit, should directly be translated empty glory. Empty glory. Having a high opinion of one's self or one's accomplishments without any basis for it. Empty glory. It's temporal glory in contrast with the real glory, the glory of God. It's this temporal, fading, fake glory. So unlike real glory. The person who is vainglorious is the person who glories in the empty glory of this life because they fail to understand what is truly glorious. John Piper illustrates this concept by likening it to a person who goes to the Grand Canyon, takes out his little shovel... And digs himself a little ditch, a little trough. And he calls everybody around him and says, hey everybody, check it out. Look what I just made. I made myself this ditch. And maybe he says, I bet you guys can't make a ditch like I can make. And everybody's standing around saying, boy, you've missed it. Just turn around and look at real glory behind you. In the glory of the Grand Canyon. It denotes the mercenary spirit or a hireling who serves people for the benefit of pay or receiving some sort of temporal reward. They're less driven by love than for profit and enjoyment in this temporal life. The person who says, well, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out? Sure, I'll help that person if, you know, I get a thank you card maybe or there's some sort of, you know, free donut involved. Some sort of temporal enjoyment. And in the Greek, there's this double negative. There's no verb actually supplied. And the combination of these things forcibly draw attention to its absoluteness. That is, never do anything. Never, never, never do anything from selfish ambition or empty glory. Is his point. Never. Not on the weekends. Not in your free time. Never. Never. So instead of having a vainglorious mindset, we're, had, we're to have a humble mindset. He says, but in humility of mind, in humility of mind, the phrase humility of mind is actually a combination of two words. It's that word, for netto, that we talked about, that, that filter for choices, that paradigm of thinking. And the word humility. So in other words, Let humility be your framework for thinking. So not only are we to think with a singularity of purpose, but we're supposed to think with humility. Our decisions should be made based upon an understanding of who we are in Christ. And it's interesting. It's been mentioned before that in classical Greek culture, the word humility was not a flattering word. It was a derogatory term. It connoted servility, weakness, shameful lowliness. It's the person who had nothing to boast in. It's the person everybody looked down on. The outcast. They had had nothing to offer. They were broke of value, you could think. But this is talking about the person... Who has a mindset of such. In other words, it's the person who consistently has this small view of themselves. We often think that humility is best demonstrated by a person when they speak bad about themselves. They disregard compliments. They make self-degrading comments. And often they do that just to be funny. But that's that's not the humility. That's not real humility. Because really what that's trying to do is draw attention to oneself. It's false humility. The kind of humility Paul is speaking of is focused upon a mindset rather than an image. He's not saying that everybody would look upon you as a humble person. It's that you would recognize and make... that you would recognize you have nothing. A humble mindset. It's how you think of yourself, not how others view you. In fact... The humble person is the one who consistently thinks of himself as a slave. And therefore it's not demonstrated by how one responds to a compliment, but rather how one responds in the context of their normal, everyday life. When they're at home with their family, when they're at work, when they're in the marketplace, when they're driving on the road, Humility is demonstrated less in what people do and more in how they think about themselves. Which affects what they do, of course. And of course, if you have a humble mindset, you will consistently consider other people more significant than yourself, being focused upon their interests rather than your own interests. Which is what Paul says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the word look out... Signifies to, to look out for, to be on notice of, to keep your attention fixed upon something. It's, it's like uh, the mindset of a butler. Or if you've ever been to one of those fancy restaurants where the waiter just, just waits and as soon as you get up from their table they walk over and they arrange your dishes. They're just looking for the chance to come over and serve you. Focused intently upon how to serve that person just like a butler. What comes to mind is Downton Abbey, but that doesn't work (laughs) with this illustration so much as we know the characters. But a humble person does not merely consider how he can serve others. He goes one step further and considers himself as a slave to others. Paul is exhorting us to be slaves. And this becomes obvious when you look at his example. Verse 5. Or sorry, verse 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And he uses the word doulos, not diakonos. He uses the word slave, not servant there. It's translated servant because... Our American minds don't like that word, slave. It's the word for a galley slave. He took on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says, do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not hold on to his rights as God. See, although Christ was very God, a very God, worthy of worship from everything in creation, that's not what he experienced when he came to earth. Worship was Christ's by right. Right. His right to be worshipped was not based on some earthly law or constitution. It was a right based upon his very existence. You could say based upon his ontology. His essence. He was God. He, his being deserved worship. And he set it aside. He went from being worshipped as God in order to be treated like a common slave. He gave up all of His rights in order to save us. See, we get upset when our constitutional rights are violated. And rightly so. We get upset when our humanity is violated. And rightly so. But Christ willfully allowed His deity to be violated. In order to bring you to God. As a perfect being. He suffered all. The degradation of life. Sickness. Loss. Broken relationships. Poverty. And then. He suffered under the wrath of God. For sins. That he didn't commit. And this is what Paul means when he says he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. The application for us is obvious. God is calling us to give up our own right and to be slaves. Now, don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that we have the right to make people our slaves. Or to call people to be our slaves. That's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. He's calling us to a slavery of volition. A slavery of our own choice. As Christians we choose to be slaves of one another. We would never call another person to be slaves of us. Never. So if a husband were to go home after this message and say to his wife... Honey, you need to apply Philippians 2 and do the dishes tonight. She has every right to call him out in his hypocrisy. But nevertheless, a humble wife would freely embrace, joyfully embrace, I'd say, that opportunity because she was asked. Now, if the government tried to take my constitutional rights away from me, because I was a Christian, I would fight for those rights. Because it's unjust based upon the laws of our land. However, I would give up my rights as a US citizen if that's what it took for me to be able to share the gospel in a foreign land. So it's it's a, it's a it's a fight for your rights given the laws of this land, but at the same time a willful choice considering the purpose that you've been called to. It's a slavery of volition. Something an individual does out of love for their Savior. And this is what Christ did out of His love for us. Look at verse 7. He emptied Himself. This is a very important theological term because it describes the incarnation. How God became man. And simply put, the phrase amplifies the previous phrase. Christ did not hold on to His rights as God But he took on the form of a slave. Christ emptied himself of his right to be worshipped of God. As God, that's what it means. So he remained fully God. He was fully God in his essence. But he took on the additional physical life of a slave. As fully God, he became fully man. But the emphasis is on what kind of man he became. He became a slave. And we are to frame our choices not based upon what we want, but we are to think as people who have given up their rights. The truly humble person is the one who makes decisions not based upon what he or she wants, but what is in the best interests of Christ and in the best interests of His church. And the opportunities for being tested in our humility are endless. At work, submitting to our superiors, at home caring for our, our wives or our kids on the road submitting to other drivers. They're endless. We just be here all day thinking of ways. And this is in contrast to being self centered in our decisions or the vain glorious person who selfishly pursues the empty glory that this life offers. See, when we truly make decisions based upon self-interest, we receive empty glory. It's like, it's like Cracker Jack treasures compared to true glory. See, look how Paul continues his description of Christ in verse 9. He says, because of what Christ did, because of the choice that he, make, he made, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that therefore. The reason God highly exalted him is because of what Christ did. God exalted Christ in response to his self-humbling. And this is really the supreme illustration of what Christ taught to his disciples, that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He says every knee, the bowing of the knee, is a mark of extreme abasement, of submission. It denotes the universal homage, the universal worship that Christ will receive after he returns because of what he did initially in his first coming and becoming a slave giving up his rights as God so that we might be saved. God the Father exalted Christ because of his complete and other self-abandonment. Civilization has always honored its heroes. Victorious consuls in Rome would parade through the streets on these white horses and they'd have a whole train of conquered peoples and all their soldiers and music would be playing. Loyal soldiers during the medieval period would be giving a knight, given a knighthood for valor in combat. We give medals of honors for uncompromising heroism and cur- courage within our soldiers. We make movies about momentous people. We write books about them. We give chairs to those who have reached the pinnacle of academia. Nobel Prizes to the most influential people in the world. We throw parades for Super Bowl champions. Throughout history, society has always honored those who have reached what they consider the height of human achievement. And it's here where we see God honoring what he considers the height of spiritual achievement. Complete selflessness. It is this kind of life that God honors. Which is why Paul is pleading with the Philippians in chapter 2 to pursue unity by understanding the gospel and its call to selflessness. Being single-minded in purpose by fully embracing the purposes of Christ. And then having the, the mindset of a slave. Humility. And of course, Christ is the ultimate example of that. And one of the great encouragements that I have as I read this chapter is in recognizing Christ in His first coming didn't receive this. In fact, His disciples begged Him. To receive the the glory that he deserved as the Messiah. But he died a very lonely death. Humiliating death. A very, an excruciatingly painful death. Very alone. Abandoned by his closest friends. And that may be our allotment in this life. We, We don't see... The sacrifices one another needs to make. We don't see the shame that one another has to endure. We don't see the losses. And sometimes following Christ in this life is excruciatingly lonely. But one of the great comforts is that being in Christ it's it's never a loss. You'll be rewarded if the, the reason you make the choices that you make is because you have a passion for Christ in this church, you're going to be rewarded. And so in this life, you might be considered nothing. Worthless. But if this is what drives you, you will be highly exalted. Not, not like Christ. But Christ promises again and again. He promises that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And so as you choose to make such decisions of humility, know that it's never a loss. All the losses that you can incur in this life, all the loneliness, all the pain, all the humiliation, will be rewarded. And cling to that. And we have the evidence of that in what God promises Christ here, every knee will bow and tongue confess that He is Lord, and we will enjoy that because that's why we're sacrificing—is that every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let's pray as we await that great day. Father, give us strength, strength particularly to die to ourselves, because that's the enemy. It's it's uh, the enduring sin in our flesh. God, it's easy to, to point our fingers at the world and to point our fingers at our friends and blame them because of the selfishness that drives us. And you are not fooled. And Lord, when we're honest, we're not either. I pray that you would root out selfishness in us as individuals and cause us to be a, a church that is known by its fruit. And I beg that that fruit would be humility, and that that, that humility would be felt. Not that we would be exalted in this life, God, but that we would that we would effectually love and care for one another as those needs come about. Lord, that 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 the outsiders, that the unbelievers, would be drawn to you because of the genuineness the genuine life change that's taken place in our lives and and the genuine love that we experience as a church, that God, I pray that you would guard us. And And I pray this because in our flesh we can't do it on our own, but guard us from disunity. And God, I'm thankful that I don't see any of it in this church, which is phenomenal. But I'm not as ignorant to think, that one, it might not be there, and even if it isn't now, that it might not later creep in. God, help us to be vigilant with one another. And help us to be vigilant to die to ourselves. To effectively uh, offer up our lives as a, as a sacrifice of praise, which is what you deserve. Because God, you, you gave us everything in giving us your Son. How can we not give you all things as well? Give us guidance as we pursue this. We pray these things in Christ's name.